Good morning. Our next case is Kinsley versus Ace Speedwear Racing Limited et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justices, and may it please the court. I'm Ryan Park from the North Carolina Department of Justice, representing Secretary Kinsley in his official capacity as head of the Department of Health and Human Services. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case takes us back to a difficult time in our recent history, just a little over three years ago, when the world was suddenly thrust into crisis. In the spring and summer of 2020, a novel and fast-spreading virus was sweeping the globe, and the executive branch leaders that our people elected to protect them during emergencies, President Trump on the national level and Governor Cooper here in North Carolina, were forced to make a series of excruciating decisions in real time based on the best available information at the time between saving lives and preserving our healthcare system and temporarily restricting economic and other social activities. One of those decisions was the Secretary's choice to issue an abatement order pausing a Speedway's ability to host what were, at the time, some of the largest mass, mass gatherings occurring anywhere in the country, and which would have been illegal virtually anywhere in the country, including under similar executive orders issued by all of our neighbors, Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, Council, I, I have a sort of a, a threshold question about the, the abatement order. So the, the, the order repeatedly references the governor's emergency order. Um, under the Emergency Management Act, there is an enforcement provision. And what that provision provides is that the violation of an emergency order is uh, a, a crime. There's no civil enforcement mechanism. So I have a concern that, that, that the order of abatement is essentially an attempt to enforce the governor's order through some civil mechanism, even though the legislature didn't give the governor the authority to enforce this order civilly. Can you help me with that? Yes, Your Honor. So, Justice Allen, nothing in the Emergency Management Act says that the remedies available to the governor uh, or their enforcement mechanisms uh, in the act are exclusive. And of course, a common set of facts can violate multiple laws that happens all of the time and be subject to multiple separate enforcement streams. So, for example, in the Emergency Management Act, one of the enforcement mechanisms is explicitly that the governor has the authority to order uh, and direct local officials to comply with uh, emergency mandates, to, to, to get uh, individual affected businesses and individuals to comply with mandates. Uh, so there are, even within the act, there are multiple enforcement mechanisms. Uh, and, and here, what the secretary determined is that as well as violating the Emergency Management Act, uh, the conditions on the ground in the spring and early summer of 2020, where ACE was host hosting multiple thousands of people uh, in Alamance County and gathered together in one place, that that independently posed an imminent risk to so, public so, health. So just to elaborate a little bit on my, my concern here, if you look at, for example, 168-175, that's the the statute that gives municipalities the power to enforce ordinances. It includes a provision that allows criminal enforcement, but then it also lays out a set of civil um, mechanisms that local governments can use. I don't see that in, in the Emergency Management Act, and so therefore I have a concern that the legislature made a decision to limit the means of enforcement and that that the abatement order is to some extent an effort to circumvent that limitation. Um, yes, Your Honor, so there are, there are two separate points I'd like to make in response to that concern. Uh, first is, uh, again, that there, I don't think that there's, there's ever been any dispute that the Secretary has the authority to issue, or had at that time the authority to issue abatement orders uh, limiting uh, public health hazards, and that she made an independent determination. So, so why is the the governor's? Or, so, I, so I agree with you that that the secretary could have issued an order under 138-20 without citing the governor's order at all. So, if it's not an attempt to enforce the governor's order, why is the order mentioned throughout? And, and I'll point out that the, the that for the in the 
provision of the abatement order that, that deals with duration, essentially what it says is it's going to last while the governor's order is in effect. So it doesn't seem like an independent determination. That's my concern. Yeah, so I think it's perfectly permissible for the secretary to use as a basis for determining that there's an imminent health risk a, a separate source of authority. So if, for example, there's a salmonella, there was a risk of a salmonella outbreak at uh, ACE's concession stand, uh, and uh, there was not explicit statutory authority for addressing a salmonella outbreak, they could, the secretary could use her general uh, public health authorities to uh, abate the nuisance and to uh, order that uh, temporarily ACE's concession stand not operate uh, until the health risk had been resolved. Uh, and I guess the, the broader point I'd like to make, Your Honor, is that that is a question of a statutory violation. It's not a fruits of labor clause claim. It's not a selective enforcement claim. But, but if, well, I think it might be a, a fruits of labor claim because if the abatement order is unlawful, then wouldn't, and it, and it does in fact infringe on the ability of, of the um, speedway to uh, make an income, then couldn't it be then a, a violation of the right to the enjoyment of the fruits of one's labor? I don't think the analysis would really shake out in, in that way, Your Honor. I think, uh, well, f first of all, this court has never said that a mere statutory violation uh, is automatically a violation of the fruits of labor clause, uh, but, but more specifically directed to your- I, I'm not, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying where you have an order that um, places such uh, severe restrictions on the economic activity of, a, of, a, of an individual or a company that in that situation, uh, if it's done so, if, if, that, if those restrictions are imposed unlawfully, that's, that's what I'm getting at. It couldn't, it's not just any violation, but, but a violation that's uh, aimed at restricting economic activity to a, to a significant degree. I don't think that it would be uh, proper to avoid the direct constitutional question that's raised in this case, which is whether that the lawfulness of that order as it pertains to the fruits of labor clause is whether it was rationally related to promoting, protecting public health, uh, and not whether uh, the, uh, there's some claim that has not been made here that the, under the Emergency Management Act itself uh, and the scope of the governor's authority under the EMA, uh, Mr. Kitchen has forthrightly admitted throughout this litigation that he has not made a claim challenging the governor's uh, and the secretary's authority under uh, the Exec Emergency Management Act to impose restrictions uh, on uh, on businesses when there's a public. I think what Justice Allen's getting at is if the government shuts down your business, saying I'm doing so acting under this authority I have, and it turns out the government has no authority to do that that you could bring a fruits of their own labor clause claim. That, that would be irrational for the government to do that. And so it would satisfy even, I think, the, the standard that you're articulating um, for this constitutional provision, which is rational basis. I wanted to, so I have some questions about that standard, but let me take a step back. Um, so do you agree that we're here, what we're looking at here is a ruling on a 12B6 motion? Is there any just kind of dispute yeah, yes, that that's the framework? Yeah. Because you can see how at the very outset, it's kind of an odd situation. In most uh, cases involving Rule 12b-6, you wouldn't start out by saying uh, someone steps up to the podium and says, let me tell you about everything that's been going on in the world at the time this was happening. You just say, let's look at the four corners of the complaint and whether it alleges a claim. And, I, and I'm a little concerned that uh, we need to keep in that framework, even though this is a case where there's a lot more going on in the world at the time this claim arose. So my first question to you is, uh, I, I understand you to argue that there's sort of a federal rational basis claim that's very well settled, and that that is also the test that applies to fruits of their labor clause. And I noticed in your brief, uh, you sort of cited the cases that come closest to the federal standard, and you skipped over some cases like state versus balance, which are kind of the most famous, you know, fruits of their labor clause cases in our jurisprudence, and word it differently. So I'm curious, do you, what's your argument for why this sort of conceivable hypothetical test is what was happening in some of the older kind of the paradigm cases of the past, these occupational licensing cases and things like that. 
Yes, Your Honor. So there's a lot there. If I might just quickly uh, wrap up the, the beginning of the discussion on Justice Allen's question, I, I think our position is this, that uh, the, the government has enforcement direction, uh, discretion. And when there's a set of activities, a common set of facts that violate multiple statutes or uh, multiple uh, areas of law, then the, the government has the discretion to, to, to select among them. Uh, on, the, on the question that you raise, Your Honor, uh, over the last 50 years, in every, my understanding, in every single case that this court has resolved a claim like this one, a Fruits of Labor Clause claim challenging an economic regulation of a business, it has applied rational basis review. And, and yes, there are statements in some of the early licensing cases, in Harris, in Roller, and Balance, that uh, suggest a, a broader scope of review and the police power argument that Mr. Kitchen uh, is uh, advancing here. But you know, I could just read from Chief Justice Newby's decision in King versus Chapel Hill in 2014, a unanimous decision, and it says, this court has long recognized that the police power of the state may be exercised to protect or promote the health, morals, order, safety, and general welfare of society, and then to be sustained as a legitimate exercise of the police power, an ordinance that regulates trades or businesses must be rationally related to substantial government purpose. And so our position is that these may have been highly contested uh, doctrinal disputes uh, more than 50 years ago, but over the intervening decades, they have been resolved uh, in cases like King and Poor Richards and Tran. Yeah, but even the standard that you just articulated um, is very similar to the standard in balance. The only difference was if you read balance, it was evidence-based. So rather than saying, let us conceive, um, you know, essentially as judges in, uh, in evaluating your claim, what can we think of that could be uh, the rational thing that sort of taught, you know, the fit that goes between um, whatever the government action is and then the legitimate government interest that we will actually ask, what is the government interest uh, in this case? And then we'll look at, is it, was it reasonably necessary? It seems to be the wording that is used over and over again. Uh, was the government action that's taken reasonably necessary, um, it, you know, to either protect or promote that government interest? And if you look at it in that framework, you really can't decide it on 12B6. There's got to be some fact development in order to, to rule on the merits there. Do you disagree with that? Yes, Your Honor, very much so. And I think as an abstract matter, that can't possibly be true. I mean, King was decided on the pleadings. In Poor Richards, it was summary judgment, but Chief Justice Exum made very explicit that the government is not required to put forward record evidence proving that the regulation advances its, its uh, substantial interest. It's a, it's a legal question for the court. Uh, it's, not, it's not always susceptible to resolution on the pleadings, but it can be. Uh, and here, I think I would, I mean, this, this might help. I think the relevant distinction and the, the way to weave uh, the cases together is to say that, that rational basis review in this context, it's not the same as, you know, the federal anything goes standard. Uh, there are additional guardrails that are put in place. And uh, I would direct the court to, to the Poor Richard's decision, again, a unanimous decision from this court, uh, where I think the, the most meaningful constraint is that these can't, the regulations can't be a guise for economic protectionism. It can't be the government intervening in the marketplace to try to help one set of industry players, usually you know, an incumbent powerful group against new entrants. And uh, when you do regulate a particular class of businesses, the court has said repeatedly, and this is from balance, I believe, that uh, there has to be some distinguishing feature of the business in question to justify the regulation. And that's a far more searching review when, uh, than the general rational basis standard when the government uh, is regulating a particular class of businesses. Uh, and so in, to take it back here uh, on our distinguishing, the distinguishing feature of, of ACE's events in May and, and June of 2020 is that they were very large. And there, this was a time, uh, you know, two days prior to the issuance of the abatement order, uh, the secretary uh, and the world received guidance from the Trump administration that large events, including indoor and outdoor sporting events, posed the very highest risk of spreading this disease in our communities. And one particularly salient point is that these uh, very large events are, are not community-based. You know, there's evidence in the record, this is, uh, you know, this is in the preliminary injunction record, that 85% of the people who attended these races were from outside Alamance County, a lot of people from out of state even, uh, because this was such a draw, because these things were not happening anywhere at the time. Uh, and that is precisely the kind of situation where, under that Trump administration guidance, uh, the secretary believed that it posed an imminent risk to public health. So suppose, I agree with you, I think those guardrails are there. I don't, I don't think it's sort of the traditional modern federal rational basis. But it, examining those sort of guardrails that we have from the development of our jurisprudence over time, 
everything you just said and this is the concern i have about this case is those we talk about being in the record but none of that is in the allegations in the complaint but the complaint says is and you to some extent you need to get some of the facts from the second of the two causes of action but when you combine them together that the speedway spoke out against the governor resisted the you know what the government governor wanted to do embarrass the governor essentially and he ordered the government to target that particular business and shut it down when there were other similarly situated businesses engaged in the same sort of conduct and that went unregulated and it seems to me that if if they can prove that set of facts you know the standard of 12b6 is there any conceivable set of facts if they found evidence that proved that particular allegation you know even under the more you know sort of poor Richards and some of the more modern case law that would be irrational and you know that claim would go forward so why at 12b6 stage can you dismiss this claim so I think there are two separate areas that is a factual question and a legal question on the factual question I respectfully disagree because in the on the face of the counterclaims all these facts weren't available but these were counterclaims and there was a complaint and a pleading that the counterclaims were in response to and all the facts of the pandemic and I made very sure of this that we want to rely on here were stated in the complaint itself and the accompanying affidavits from Secretary Cohen and can you can we do that can you because don't you have to take the allegations is true and so can you look to the allegations that the other side made in one of their pleadings to decide whether or not you know shouldn't we be looking at what was pleaded in the counterclaim in order to know what what they want us to sort of in the four corners say this is your your allegation I mean that's what my concern is I know it's a counterclaim but they also denied a lot of those allegations that were made in the that's fair your honor but and I think there are areas of factual dispute particularly relating to the selective enforcement what other speedways are racing what did the secretary know and how do they know it essentially but on the broader facts of the pandemic there's really never been any dispute between the parties I mean the Trump administration guidance was is a public record the the number of people that have died that is all you know public record and I don't think is really susceptible to reasonable dispute even on the pleadings but you know I think the second part of your question relates more to the selective prosecution question than the fruits of labor and and I think there are multiple reasons why that doesn't apply and the first of which is that if you look at the counterclaim itself this is page 142 I believe they it says merely that other speedways are racing and the secretary is not enforcing it it never says even that those other races have more than 25 people at them right so that's a very obvious pleading deficiency but more broadly what this court's case law says is that there has to be conscious discrimination meaning that the secretary to state a claim here the secretary must have consciously chosen to target a speedway based on protected activity while leaving everyone else who engaged in the same actions in the same circumstances alone and they never meant there's no allegation even that the secretary is consciously aware of any of their speedways let alone that they were repeatedly violating the orders and bringing thousands of people together in a large gathering and and that and that's really dispositive because the selective prosecution claims are designed to be very very rigorous I mean mr. kitchens own authorities state that out the Hastings case and the leading case on this is Armstrong this is an 8-1 decision from the US Supreme Court saying that actually pleading standards don't even apply in selective prosecution claim that it's a matter of proof even on the pleadings that you can't simply say I mean this is you know those common fact patterns are things like you know I was stopped for speeding because of my race and I ever on you know information and belief that other people who are speeding were not stopped right and you can't just say that and then get a discovery and and sue the government based on your ticket you have to say that well if I was speeding at a hundred miles an hour and other people were speeding at 70 miles an hour that's a relevant distinction that defeats the claim and you have to show that the actually and it's under federal law shows a matter of proof you know so even taking that outside the pleading standards but even within the pleading standards that you have to show that the enforcement officials were aware of this disparate treatment and decided to persist in targeting someone on in an unconstitutional you moved into the the second cause of action but and I want to bring us back to the first so even if you're right about that for the fruits of their labor cost came if the allegation was you know essentially what you know taking 
everything in that, uh, those allegations and you know, all the reasonable inferences uh, in favor of the claimant, that what's going on here is you have a go government officials who are petty and say this particular business is standing up and others are not. We want, you know, let's single them out, let's target them, let's punish this business and make a point. And what I'm saying is that why isn't that? If uh, you know, there are facts that could prove that that's correct, why wouldn't that be uh, enough to prove that what the government, the action they took was not reasonably necessary to promote some public good in this particular circumstance and then that would meet the test under balance and its progeny. So you have stated a claim. Now can they prove that once they get into discovery? Who knows, but at the very early stage of the case, it would move forward. You, you just don't, you disagree with that. You don't think if all of those things in the, that are alleged there are all true, that, that this claim could, could move forward. Again, I, I think there's a factual response and a legal response, if I may. I mean, the, the factual response I think is easier, which is that's not what the complaint uh, alleges. The complaint alleges that there was public criticism of the governor's orders. Uh, well, that's from, that's from our own complaint. Uh, and that is how the secretary was alerted to these violations of uh, the, the governor's orders. And then uh, that there was an enforcement action because the government was aware of a violation. And uh, you know, I th just to give an example. But, but aren't yeah. those allegations that you made, is that in the counterclaim? So again, you know, just taking it back to simple 12B6 principles, we really can't take as true the state's allegations. We only are taking as true the allegations that have been made by the claimant. And the claimant here is the, you know, the party that's asserting the counterclaim, even though it's you know part of a response to a another plea, you know affirmative pleading. Right. Yeah. So you know on that particular point, I think it is. I think it's uh, an essential part of the counterclaim that uh, the the speech was was the reason why uh, the action was instituted. Uh, and and the legal point really is this: that that is perfectly permissible. I mean, the U.S. Supreme Court has held on. This court has not said explicitly in this context, um, but we refer, of course, to the State versus Davis case from the Court of Appeals that if someone is, is, is engaging in protected speech, criticizing a law, and then goes ahead and violates it, it's perfectly permissible for the government to, in its enforcement discretion, decide, well, well that you know, public criticism of the law is not what we're going at. We're going at the fact that we know that this violation of law is taking place. And so, you know, for example, if, if I say, you know, I have a Second Amendment right to bring a, a gun in this courtroom, I can stand outside the, the courthouse and, and declare that. Um, but if I step inside the courtroom with a firearm, th that is illegal and I can be prosecuted for that. So there is a, a very salient distinction between criticizing the law and then going ahead and breaking it. So I agree that's the doctrine for the selective prosecution of the retaliation theory. But what I'm getting at is for the fruits of their own labor clause claim, why would you need that? Because isn't, if they can prove that, you, that there were other similarly situated actors and there was no attempt to enforce there, and they're arguing we were targeted because of, and so on and so forth, all the allegations are true, claim. Then the, the fruits of their own labor clause claim would be, it, uh, they can prove that it wasn't reasonably necessary to do it to this business, to promote some public good because you would have been consistent in enforcing it against other businesses, and so there was an unreasonable or an irrational uh, re, you know, reason for the government to do what it did, which was mm -hmm. you know, some sort of you know, pettiness about this person is challenging us, whatever the arguments you are that you can infer from the allegations in this complaint, and that is enough to get past the pleading stage and get into discovery to see if that's true or not. You, you just think that's not, that doesn't work. So, well, if I may, I, you know, I think that applying that logic uh, to this case would, would really require the court to be blind to the broader context of what was happening at the time, again, my understanding is that these were among the largest mass gatherings happening anywhere in the country. Uh, and you know, the rest of society, we were all under these similar restrictions. The vast, vast majority of businesses and, and other operations were complying with the law. And this was uh, one of the few actors that was vocally, yes, protesting and then going beyond protest and violating the law. And uh, so uh, I, I think even under that logic, uh, I, I can't see how it would apply here and allow for discovery on, well, wouldn't on these Wouldn't it be that things. everything you just said is the sorts of things that discover, will come out of discovery? So at summary judgment, if their allegations aren't true, you're making the argument you're making right now, you, you win this case at summary judgment. But all the things you just described just aren't in the four corners of the counterclaim in this case. So we, you know, we, we have to ignore that in deciding whether or not they stated a claim. Well, I certainly agree that we would win on those facts on, on, on summary judgment. I guess what I'd say there is uh, that 
this is not an ordinary notice pleading situation. We're, we're operating under the Dominsky standard, uh, which requires more. It requires a colorable claim. And, and the way it's defined, as Your Honor knows, is very similar to kind of the, the federal Iqbal uh, plausibility standard, which requires more than just notice pleading and, and giving bare allegations that my rights have been violated. You have to uh, aver, you know, substantial allegations to prove that this claim, not prove, but to show that the, the claim is, is, is plausible. Uh, and uh, I think given everything we know about what was happening at the time, uh, this particular claim wouldn't meet that standard. And I see my, my I'm eating in my rebuttal time. I guess if I could just make one last point that I think connects to this discussion, uh, which is it would really be particularly inappropriate to award money damages to A Speedway in this context where everyone was under similar restrictions uh, and the political branches stepped up. And uh, my understanding is that over $20 billion, billion dollars uh, of funds were dispersed to North Carolinians, individuals, and businesses uh, to help compensate for the financial hardships and the suffering that they uh, endured because of these and other restrictions. Uh, and uh, I mean, to give some comparison, that's Council, roughly, I'm, yes. I'm sorry, I know this is cutting into your rebuttal, but doesn't quorum say money damages is the appropriate remedy? It says that if there's no other uh, less restrictive remedy uh, that is available to to, to, to remedy the harm, then yes, it, it's an appropriate remedy. Uh, but that discussion, it doesn't say that money damages are necessarily uh, the appropriate remedy. And uh, I think it actually hints in the other direction, Your Honor, uh, because what it says is, so that claim was an employment dispute. Someone uh, was, was terminated and they, they want to be reinstated and they also wanted back pay. And what the court said is it might be appropriate to allow order reinstatement on remand without back pay. And it didn't say that uh, it would be, but it contemplated the possibility that injunctive relief alone would be the appropriate remedy there. So with that, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, and may I please the court. I'm representing the appellees after five events, LLC and the Turners. My name's Chuck Kitchen. What we have here are three primary issues that have been raised. The first is a free of the labor's clause, second is selective enforcement. The third, um, which was just touched on by the state, is the uh, least what were they calling it, least um, intrusive remedy. I will try to address all three of those if time permits. First, I'd like to frame this um, argument a little bit. The state has uh, filed an, an, a motion to dismiss based on sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity was not mentioned in the argument, and the state has kind of ignored that. But it is a sovereign immunity motion. In other words, the question is, does the court have jurisdiction to consider this action? The short answer is, yes, they do. In quorum, the court held that sovereign immunity does not bar a claim based on a violation of our Constitution. In Dominski, this court did say the claim must be colorable. So that's where we get into this other argument. So with a colorable claim, all that has to be shown is that the claim is plausible, that it may be asserted given the facts and the law. What we have in this case is a speedway which was operating. It was ordered to be closed by the DHHS secretary for violating an executive order. Even though there is talk about this imminent health hazard, there was no imminent health hazard. It's simply a violation of an executive order. Justice Allen had brought the issue about can you do that? Can you use a uh, executive order for the basis to have an order from DHHS which closed a business? Under Moose versus Barnett, this court said no. This court said, if you have a criminal remedy specified in the statute, 
then you must use that criminal remedy. Now, the, the state says, well, you know, that's just one thing. It didn't say we couldn't do something else, but this court has said, no, you can't do something else. If you have a statute that provides the remedy, that is the remedy you have. You can't just go off and do something else. What happened? The state went and uh, ordered the sheriff. The governor actually had the sheriff called, sent letters to the board of commissioners and to the sheriff saying, go shut down a speedway. And the sheriff said, no. said, I'm not going to do it. He went out, he talked to them, but he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to shut down a speedway. So what did the state do? Did they have the Turners arrested, which presumably they could do? The state has all kinds of law enforcement they could send out there. They could send out state troopers. You got SBI. You got all kinds of agents. They didn't do that. Instead, they said, we're going to go and issue an order of abatement. We're going to do a civil remedy to shut you down for violating my executive order. This court has said that is not proper. This court has also said, in a case called Malay versus City of Durham, that it is important under the Fruit of the Labor's Clause that you use the proper procedures. If you have procedures adopted, then you should follow them. You can't go off and do something else to shut down a business, to deprive someone of their employment, to keep them from working. Counsel, the, the argument you're articulating now, which I think is following up on Justice Allen's questions about the validity of the abatement order, which is relying on the governor's emergency order, did you have to plead that? Or in your view, is that the sort of question of law that when you say it was unlawful to do it, it's sort of incorporated into that allegation? Because I didn't see anything in the counterclaim that's articulating the theory you're, you're describing right now. We, ad we adopted by reference the previous part of the of our answering counterclaim and yes we didn't go back out and restate everything but yes I will submit we did plead it that's the other issue I want to get into the, the state has said this is a 12b6 motion that's not what they filed they filed a 12b1 2 and 6 motion and at argument in the Superior Court they referenced matters outside the pleading and arguing the case it's only when they got up to the Court of Appeals all of a sudden, oh, it's a 12B6 motion. Well, it wasn't down below. It was just about sovereign immunity under 1, 2, and 6. And of course, under 12B1 and 2, you can bring in uh, evidence outside the pleadings. The Court of Appeals treated it just as a 12B6 and ignored the, the rest of the motion. The problem with one that. thing, I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I think one reason it kind of became a 12B6 case is that the 12B1 and 12B2 argument is sovereign immunity. And in the context of this type of claim, that sovereign immunity question is just because it's a quorum claim, did you assert a, is it a colorable claim in, in the allegations? And so it would be very odd to say we can put in a bunch of evidence and sort of litigate the merits of that question because you're really just supposed to be looking at the complaint. Is it plausible? A constitutional claim, and I, I, I understand your argument to be, of course it is, because we, you know what we said is we got singled out and targeted. You know we were very clear in the counterclaim about those allegations, and we don't look at anything other than what we've alleged, because you have to assume that everything we've alleged will be proven to be true. That, that's your position. Correct. The, I'll agree with you on the twelve B six. That's the reason they kind of got there, but it, I, I'm not convinced under your jurisprudence that a 12B6 motion and uh, under Domensky that that's the same standard. It seems like it's lesser under Domensky. Um, at least that's the way I, I'm reading the case um, because it, it's, it's a plausible claim. It's not saying you have to say everything exactly the way you need to under 12B6. Let, let, but I'm sorry, not sure it matters. Let, let, let me jump in on, on that. In, in Tully, the, the court says, look, all, all you have to plead is that there was some violation of a policy, uh, or, or that there was a policy in place, rather, there was a violation of a policy, and as a result, there was some harm. That's right. Right? 
So, so how does that square with your reading of Domensky and what's required? I mean, it would, it would seem that Tully's a lower standard. Uh, and, and do you meet that standard with what's in your complaint and how? I believe so. <clears throat> because what we alleged in the complaint is that, first of all, they had, this, is, is, this is different than what you normally see. First of all, we didn't have a complaint. We had a counterclaim. But I think it's important. And it's important because the state came and made allegations. They made all these allegations. Three of their paragraphs, which made up part of their element of their claim, was they spoke out against us. They spoke out against the governor. How could they do that? That's part of the elements of their cause of action. Normally, it is very difficult, um, some might say almost impossible, to prove a selective enforcement claim. It is not easy, and if you accept the standard the state has, it's impossible to prove a free your labor violation as well. But this is different. They actually said, we're going after you because you spoke out. It's an admission. They said that's why they're doing this. When they said that, we agree with them. Yes, we, we'll, we'll admit to that. That's why you're going after our clients, because they spoke out against you. And when you did that, you didn't even go and use the right means of enforcing your executive order. So I believe, to answer your question, we have pled, both in our answer, which was incorporated by reference, and in the other defenses, which were also incorporated by reference, that we have made, that we have met the Domensky standard. Now, looking back, if I had known we would be here when I was drafting that counterclaim, I would have simply repeated everything I'd said before. And it makes it a lot easier if you do that, but when you're drafting, you know, you don't want to repeat things two and three times because you get, you know, these monstrous pleadings. So you just incorporate by reference, which is what we did. And I believe we have put in a plausible claim. Matter of fact, I think we put in more than one plausible claim. I'd like to ask you about uh, the, the standard of review for the um, fruits of one's labor claim. Um, the state cites a couple of cases, uh, Treants and uh, Poor Richards, um, for the proposition that we have essentially adopted rational basis review. Uh, and there is language in those two cases that does seem to a significant degree to track that, that federal standard. Do you think that's the standard of review um, did, did Treance, did poor Richards change the law with respect to that? I don't believe so. And this is the reason why. Back in 1960, this court and State versus Warren set forth a test. And what it said was, the first thing you have to look at is does the state have the police power to do whatever it's doing? Going back, um, what well, seems like 100 years ago, I was in law school. And I took this course, and it uh, is on government. And they said, well, when you're drafting something, if you're drafting a statute, an ordinance, an order, the first thing you've got to look at is, do you have authority to do it? So in this case, what we're saying is, <coughs> versus Warren, this course looks at, do you have the authority to do what you've just done? Do you have the authority to shut down somebody's ordinary business? Our position is no, you do not. Now, poor Richards and there are several other cases that talk about was it reasonable to do what they were doing? And when you look at those, you see what they're talking about are regulations. And what they, this court said in State v. Warren was, well, first, you look at, is there a police power? That police power stops at regulation. In other words, the state can issue regulation. They didn't do that. 
in this order of abatement. They shut us down. They said, we are shutting down a speedway. We're not going to regulate you. We're closing you, period. It is important to note, I think, that had this been a reasonable regulation situation, that there, we would not be here today. My clients met with the health department. They gave them a list of things to do. They said, here's a list of things to do for you to operate safely. They did all of them. They complied. But the health department said, well, this is an interim list. There'll be a final one coming out from the governor. The final one came out and said, you can only have 25 people. This is a speedway that seats over 5,000 people. It is an outdoor facility. It is huge. Used to be a, a NASCAR track. It's not some small raceway. It's a big speedway. You can, if you can imagine, there are grandstands going up on both sides. Over 5,000 people can get in there. If you only put 25 people in it, you, you, know, you couldn't even recognize the people that are there. You're so far apart. Does that, to be fair, though, Pardon me? You could have said that in an allegation in the counterclaim, and you, you didn't, right? I mean, we can certainly look to your, to the, what you admitted from the allegations in the complaint to figure out the size of the stadium and things like that. But some of what you're describing is some of it outside. Was, yeah, the, some of it was outside the complaint. But like I said, when we argue this in front of the Superior Court, we're talking about 12B1 and 2, which allows for evidence to come in from outside. We submitted testimony which came in without objection from the state that was presented at the preliminary injunction hearing. So it was not, a, we put it into evidence, they didn't object to it, so I would submit it's there. And it, it, had they objected to it saying, well, this goes beyond 12B6, then we would have had an issue. They didn't. They allowed it all to come in. It's all in the transcript. So if it all came in at that point, how can now they say, oh, well, you can't rely on that to establish jurisdiction in the court if it came in at the trial court without objection? Going back to state versus one, I think it is important, if you look at the cases, they talk about regulations, they talk about statutes. You don't see the cases talking about just shutting you down. Orders of abatement that says you shall cease to operate because you have violated an executive order. As far as I know, this is the first time this has come before this court. If you were just looking at regulation, I don't believe you have the problem. It's when you shut them down or in the King versus Chapel Hill case, you adopt something that is so onerous that you can't comply with. I think this might be what you're saying, but I, so is your position that, you know, the question, the test is, was the governmental, was the chosen governmental action reasonably necessary to promote uh, some legitimate government interest? And your argument is the question of whether it's reasonable to choose to close a business rather than doing these other things is something that it is inherently a fact, an evidence-based, a fact question. So you've alleged in your complaint, or in your, in your counterclaim, that uh, there was no uh, sort of rational explanation. It wasn't reasonably necessary. It was you know, based on a bunch of illegitimate reasons. And you think you're going to prove when you get to discovery that that's actually the case. Your, your friend for the state doesn't think you're going to prove that. But it seems like <clears throat> at this stage of the case, because we have to take everything you say is true, that it's certainly moving forward to figure out who's right about that. That's your position? So in other words, you're not saying you can never shut a business down. No, I'm in not our state. saying that. Well, what it just it needs to be reasonably necessary for. Well, it's, I think it's a little different than that. At least if you go back to your uh, state versus Warren test, if it is a social ill, you can certainly shut the business down. Uh, orders of abatement go to specific businesses. You don't have an order of abatement saying every speedway in North Carolina is closed. That would make no sense because you have a fact basis for an order of abatement. It's an imminent health hazard. 
The state has not shown anything that indicates they should be way with them in a health hazard. It, just, they just didn't. They talk about, well, if you go and sing, it's a, it's a problem. Uh, they, it can spread COVID. If you have um, a Mardi Gras and they tend Mardi Gras, that can be a problem. What we had was three races with over 5,300 people attending without people getting COVID. It's because of all the steps they took to prevent that. Okay. Aren't you going to prove that with facts, and then this this will be something you show at summary judgment? You forecast that evidence. I mean, there's not because that's also not in the complaint or well, your counterclaim, right? Right. I'm just trying it to is, keep everybody where we need to be at this stage of the case. Well, it's and just, yet, yes, yes, and no. I mean, this goes back to what was introduced into the argument at the superior court level. Um, what the, the status is, well, you know, all that stuff that came in, we don't think that should have come in. But they didn't accept from it. They didn't appeal it. It did come into evidence because we thought it was 12B1 and 2. We didn't see any problems that coming in. And there was, in this case, which is unusual, there was a lot of evidence which came in in a hearing. But I guess what I'm getting at is I, I think the reason that typically you see sovereign immunity as B1, B2, B6. Right. Is that in many cases you do need some limited sort of quote jurisdictional discovery. You know, is there an insurance contract that's waiving, you know, the, the sovereign immunity? Is there, you know, for personal jurisdiction questions, of course, you routinely get jurisdictional discovery. Mm -hmm. But in a quorum claim, the thing that waives the sovereign immunity is have you asserted a colorable claim? And so that is a question for the allegations in the complaint, not because if you're going to say, let's start, let you do discovery and figure out if it's a colorable claim, you're, you're moving down into the merits. And the whole point is you don't, you know, the, the, the argument is you never do the merits if you're entitled to sovereign immunity or you don't have to be hailed into court at all. So normally, I think that's what was going on in this case. Yeah, normally when I have done sovereign immunity cases, which I've played that a lot over the years, I would always put in affidavits and insurance policies, which you have to do in order to show there's not been uh, a waiver of sovereign immunity. There's no, except for a very few cases, there's not any kind of discovery on that. And when there had been discovery, the judge converted it to Rule 56. So uh, in Data General versus County of Durham, the Court of Appeals, and there's a, there's a string sign in the, in the brief on this, has said, for purposes of determining sovereign immunity, you can look outside the pleadings. For Domensky, I think that same rule applies. I mean, it's in front of the court. The judge is looking at it to see if there's a plausible claim. You've got what's been alleged. You've got affidavits. In this case, the state was also arguing about affidavits and what had been testified to. Both sides are looking at the same thing. So I would submit that it's, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's exactly the same as a 12B6. Because but I agree with you, here. but what you just described, because you can certainly look for the colorable claim standard at summary judgment as well. I think you said it. If the court wants to do that, wants to get into all of that, then you have converted the Rule 12 motion to a 56, and you have to allow the parties the reasonable discovery that the rules of civil procedure permit before you would say, okay, now I'm going to, show me your evidence, because that wouldn't be fair to people to do it in a fact-based way without allowing both sides to try to gather all the evidence that they can to make their claim. Well, if the, <clears throat> if the parties ask for discovery, it's been my experience that that's when it's converted to, 12, to a, a Rule 56. If it's simply affidavits being presented, at least under data general, that's fine. And the court can see, you know, has there been a waiver? Is there a statute? Uh, or in this case, is there a constitutional claim that waives, a, you know, a plausible constitutional claim that waives sovereign immunity? I would submit there is, and I believe we've pled it, and I believe there's a sufficiency of evidence to back that up. Uh, we're, there's been enough evidence put in this record that was before the Superior Court judge that I think, you know, you're way down the road from where you're in a normal case. I don't remember ever having a case that we had so much evidence prior to the time of deciding on a motion to dismiss. I mean, we had a tremendous amount of evidence. 
getting back, if I could, to the, the fruits of your labor and not following the statute. Kind of got away from that, but I believe that establishes in and of itself a fruits for your labor violation. Because in this case, the state did not follow the statute. The state instead chose to go criminal when there was no authorization and did not follow what the statute said. So I think that is a, a is an important case. I mean, there's really two different ways to look at the fruits for your labor claim, and I believe either one of them, I think both were pled, and I believe both of them uh, establishes a waiver of sovereign immunity. And, and isn't that like Tully, right? It is, isn't Tully, there's a procedure, there's a violation, and, and then there's harm. Here, I take it your argument is there's a statute, there's a failure to comply with the statute or going around the statute, uh, and, and your clients have suffered harm. Right. So you mentioned earlier that um, you know, th this is sort of different than your typical regulatory uh, case. And, and your friend on the other side says, look, when, when we look at this, this is, it's kind of rational basis plus, right? Because there's a complete deprivation here, um, should it be entitled to some heightened scrutiny? Well, I think there's a, since there's a complete um, deprivation, I believe you fall back to the state versus Warren standard, which is you've got to look to see if there's a police power, period. There is a deprivation there wasn't a regulation at all. It's simply you have deprived somebody, and that in and of itself goes beyond the power of the state. If you go beyond the power of the state, you have a through your labor's clause violation, or more importantly to say, it's your right to earn a living. Because, that right, because the right to earn a living is two different sections of our Constitution. One of them, which has not been talked about a lot in the brief of the, the state, is the law of the lands clause. I think when you start talking about using civil procedure, or not civil procedure, civil remedy, instead of criminal remedies, you're getting into that due process that is part of the law of the lands clause, which makes up your right to earn a living. It's both of them. They talked a lot about the history of the free the labor's clause. They didn't talk about the Magna Carta, which obviously is, is where our law of the lands clause come from. The Magna Carta was uh, enacted to keep the king from using certain powers to simply deprive the people of their rights, the rights to property, the rights to work, the land that they had. That's what we have here, I think, is we have the state depriving people of the right to earn a living. I, let me just make sure I understand the implications of your argument here. So you're saying that even if there was a public health problem with people gathering in these numbers, um, that, that the state could not protect the public by, by stopping the gathering, the state could only criminally punish whoever's responsible for holding the event. No, I'm not, no. Your Honor, if I could, um, Justice Earls, let me talk about a case that is not in the, in the, the briefs. Okay. Um, that, which actually is an illustrative of what you can do, what the state did do. Uh, there was a case called, I believe it's Smith versus Cooper, which involved gyms. It was a um, business court case. Everything was transferred to the business court uh, for a long time. That was COVID, that was the COVID cases. And that was the one where they shut down the gyms. During an argument, uh, the state said, we really didn't mean to shut down the gyms we really meant only to regulate them. What did they do next? They actually adopted rules as to when gyms could operate and how they had to operate. They adopted the regulations. So if you have, let's say the speedways were causing a problem, the state certainly can come in and then DHHS can promulgate rules and have public hearings on those rules, and then they could enforce those rules. That wasn't done here. And there wouldn't be any timeliness problems? I mean, how? You can, there was not in the, the gyms case. Actually, they did them within a, week, within a couple of weeks, I believe, because you can, do, you can adopt um, an emergency rule. You do emergency rulemaking, 
which has to be followed up with your normal procedures, which you can do in an emergency rule, which is done in, in a matter of days. So that can be done. There are ways of doing this. It's simply the state didn't follow the established rules that are set forth in the general statutes. This isn't saying, no, the state is powerless to protect the people. The state can protect the people, but there are procedures to go through to do that, and they didn't use them. And again, I'll, just to be clear, in, you know, your allegations are that was not the reason that your client's business was shut down anyway. Your allegation is that your business got targeted and shut down your client's business because the government was upset about things that your client had done, the way the client was speaking about the restrictions. And That's that correct. Justice there were many Steve. other similar businesses. Yeah, this, this is just government. answering Justice Earl's question right. as to Right, the that's the here. If you were to look at the four corners of the counterclaim, you know, that's, that, that's the claim that you focused on and saying we're stating claim, we're getting past sovereign immunity on this ground. Do yes. You, does your fruits of the labor, fruits of your labor claim depend on the selective enforcement claim? That is, can you win your fruits of the labor claim if you fail to prove and a court fails to find that it was selective enforcement? I believe we can um, because I don't, because there's also the argument that there is no rational basis for what they did. And I don't think there is. Even if you get beyond the police power claim that we've made, we've also briefed that there is no rational basis. There was no one getting sick at the Speedway. Uh, they had implemented all the regulations except for the 25-person limit, which we believe was irrational because they had no basis for putting in the 25-person, which deprived my clients of their ability to make a living. So, yes, I think we could prove that, even without the selective enforcement. Selective enforcement makes it a lot easier that they have gone and alleged that they, excuse me, that they alleged that they are going after them because they talk to the press and criticize the governor. Makes it a lot easier to, to prove the case. But you don't have to have that. I am going, well, my time is up. I will stand on my brief as to the remaining issues. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kitchen. We'll hear from our rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Three quick points, if I may. First, on the statutory question, uh, I don't think, with due respect, it's reasonable to read the Emergency Management Act as setting forth an exclusive set of remedies. The very first words of the act are, in addition to any other powers conferred upon the governor by law, and then it goes on to enumerate powers. The section heading that is additional powers of the gover governor during a state of emergency, uh, that same language uh, appears uh, later in the statute when it discusses the, uh, the local conditions powers. It says, in addition to any other powers conferred upon the governor by law. But 138-20 uh, doesn't confer powers on the governor. It confers powers on the secretary. Uh, well, of course, Your Honor, but the, the secretary is a part of the governor's administration. I, I think that is uh, reasonable to, uh, to read that statute as uh, a, when a governor's cabinet uh, official uh, has certain authority that that is enc encompassed under the governor's authority. And the last part of the statute I point you to would be the violation language. You know, it, it does say that it's a class D, uh, two misdemeanor to violate uh, the, the governor's emergency orders, but it doesn't say that that is exclusive. And uh, I, I'm not aware of any canon of construction that says a, a criminal remedy set forth in a statute means that uh, the civil remedies are impliedly excluded. Um, the, the second point I'd like to make relates to uh, the, the allegations in the counterclaim. Of course, the challenger bears the burden, as always, to set forth colorable allegations uh, of a violation of law. And uh, there's nothing unusual about an abatement order that temporarily requires a, a business to take some actions uh, or to pause its operations until a public health risk uh, is, a, is removed. Uh, so this is not a, a ban. It's not uh, banning uh, the, a speedway from, from operating its business. It was a, a pause for the summer of 2020. Uh, which it, it bears noting was uh, more than a year before this court allowed in-person oral arguments, this abatement order was lifted. And in the, the summer of, of 2021, ACE was racing because there were no restrictions uh, at that time. Uh, and I think the final point, uh, again, is that these were extraordinary times. We, we all understand that. Uh, and the political branches stepped up with extraordinary amounts 
of financial relief for affected individuals and businesses. So a financial comparison, I think, is, is instructive. The uh, around $24 billion uh, in, in funds were expended to individuals and businesses from the state and federal government who were affected by the pandemic. That's equivalent to the entire state budget in 2019. It, they didn't intend it as such, but these programs effectively served as a judgment fund because everyone in society was affected by these regulations and suffered financial hardships, and they could seek compensation from the government. And, and that's- you're, you're almost out of time. I do have one question yes. before you run out. So in, in your view, is it the trial court's order, 12B1, 12B2, 12B6, what was going on there? That seems to be somewhat important. You heard your friend point that out. What, what, what did the trial court do? I, I'm sorry if I could- the, uh, so, you know, there was a, they're arguing it was 12B1, 12B2, 12B6. It was, we thought it was just all of it at one time. What did the trial court's order do? What, what type of order was it? Oh, my understanding is it's a, uh, you know, 12B1, 12B2, sovereign immunity, but informed by the Dominsky standard, which uh, is essentially a, a plausibility analysis. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Counsel.